Episode 34 of the podcast is with Matt Springham. Matt is the Senior Lecturer in Strength and Conditioning at St. Mary's Uni. And Matt joined us to talk about the pros and cons of working in the private sector. He also spoke about whether players have been exposed to the correct loads and intensity within training. And also what he's changed his mind or learned most over the last few years. Soccer Science is now only a few days away. So if you are going to the Soccer Science Conference, we will see you there. Um, there is still There are still tickets available. So if you do want to grab some last-minute tickets, go to footballfitfed.com and go click on the network meeting and event tab at the top, and then that'll take you through to Soccer Science Conference, and then make sure you use code FFF10 at checkout for 10% discount. So if you are there, we will, we will see you there, and we will um, be around to watch all the presentations all day. Enjoy the episode with Matt. Welcome to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. Today, I'm joined by Matt Springham. Matt is the senior lecturer in S&C at St. Mary's Uni. Matt, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, mate. Thank you for coming on. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. No problem. So I've just said there about your current role. Do you want to take us through what you've done previously up to current day? Yeah, yeah, I'll uh, I'll try and do that without boring everyone to tears. Um, so yeah, I guess what, mate? I started out in two thousand and one. I did an undergrad degree in sport and exercise science at Hearts, um, and then after I finished that, I was fortunate to get a placement in sort of sports science at QPR, which I did for did for uh, a couple of years, and they they were really good actually. To be fair, they put me on a um, a two-year course that isn't run anymore. It's called the Football Fitness Trainers Award. It was run by the FA. And it was like a probably a master's level football science course, I would, I would, I would term it as. And that was probably a really big um, breaking point for me, mate, because it put me in direct contact with some you know, real world leaders in what we do in sort of football science. Guys like Gary Phillips, Tony Strudwick, Sam Erith, Dawn Scott, um, you know, pe- people of that ilk. And as a result of doing that and building good relationships with those guys, the FA offered me some squad work for England national teams, which I did for, I think, two or three years uh, part-time. It was like an ad hoc role where I did remote strength and conditioning work for England national team players and, you know, did uh, went, went away with, with squads to training camps and European championships and, and those sorts of things. Um, and then, um, whilst doing that, I started a master's degree in human performance science at Brunel, which was okay. Um, in hindsight, it was probably a little bit too clinical in, in its orientation and probably not enough about sports performance, um, in hindsight. And, um, after completing that, I was offered a, a full-time role at QPR, which I did for two years. I headed up the sports science and, strength and conditioning department in the academy there uh, that evolved into a first team rehab S&C role and um, I was continuing to do the sort of England national team stuff in the background and I remember uh, I've told this story a couple of times actually I remember um, being away with a national team um, one week and one of the coaches had a phone call from the at the time Watford football club manager who was looking for candidates for head of sports science or a head of sports science role 
And I was asked if I wanted to, to interview for that post, which I did. And I was offered that role, um, which was incredible for me, really, you know, going, going from, um, you know, one very good academy role to, you know, another large club as head of sports science and, and S&C. And I held that role at Watford for three seasons, uh, really enjoyed it. And then I made my way down to Brighton. Um, I took a, I took a, an equivalent role at Brighton because they were, you know, as, as they continue to be very ambitious, they invested a lot of money in a new stadium and, and more importantly for me, a, a brand new training ground, which I was, you know, lucky to have some involvement in the design of. Um, and they were investing a lot in sports science and S&C, both in sort of personnel and infrastructure and equipment. So it was a really exciting place to be around. And I held that role down there for two years. Um, and then some colleagues of mine from Watford had quite senior roles at, Bright at, sorry, at Brentford at the time. So the first team manager who'd previously worked at Watford and the head of medical who'd previously worked at Watford um, just made me aware of a, of a head of sports science and S&C role that was coming up at Brentford and asked me if I wanted to get back up to London, which I did. Um, and so I took a job there and I stayed there for two years, um, really enjoyed that role there. They, at the time, uh, were investing a lot in people, you know, and, and, and trying to do things the right way. Um, and so they set up some funding for my PhD, which I started, I started down there and I stayed in that role for two years. And it was, it was a great, great experience for me, you know, another, another, um, well-resourced club, um, a very, you know, a club with a, a decent stature as well, um, doing some interesting work in science and medicine. And then, um, I, I left there Fortunately for me, really, you know, not, not through my own choice, but the, the only really club that I, that I haven't left, fortunately, through my own choice, um, owing to a managerial change and a subsequent restructure and had a couple of opportunities to go back into football at that time, but, but decided not to immediately. Instead, I, instead I sort of jumped into academia. I took a senior lecturing role in, in S&C and exercise physiology at St. Mary's, which I've been doing for about two years now. And it's um, it's an environment that's probably more more kind on your time, particularly if you're interested in you know doing um, doing research and, and uh, driving your sort of academic profile a little bit. Um, and then alongside that, I've got a, a little private practice as well. So um, a number of the players that I worked with in the previous clubs that I've worked for um, come and see me for private strength and conditioning or sports science support work. Uh, principally during, you know, times of injury or in the off season, um, even in pre-season, you know, I, I deliver strength conditioning and sports science support services to those guys. And, uh, and yeah, alongside those recommendations. And that's an interesting area, the, the private sector, isn't it? Because I think a few years ago that was, somewhat frowned upon and not many people used it and uh, a lot of coaches taught players out of it and we've spoke to a lot of people that that work in the private sector that work with players and it worked well with certain clubs so how do you find it well i think i think the key is to be transparent you know um oftentimes um oftentimes you know players players will return to you because they've had good prior experiences and they've got a level of trust in, in, in what you deliver. Um, and they might, they might wish to have services provided to them in the private sector because they don't necessarily have those things in the clubs that they're employed by. Um, 
you know, and certainly, you know, when, when I was full time in football, I was probably the type of practitioner that frowned upon players, um, you know, going externally to receive private strength ignition support services because as applied science, as applied scientists, we're trying to control everything concerned with load, right? And it's very hard to measure that when people are receiving, um, you know, sessions off site. It's very hard to quantify everything that they're doing, which is the objective of, of, of you know, physiological and performance monitoring. Um, you know, but the, the reason why the, the reason why I thought my, my argument for um, my argument why people should have less concerns in some situations is because I would argue that I'm very transparent in how I work. You know, there's no information that I wouldn't share. Um, I record everything. So I have, you know, to my disposal, I have the same stats sports metrics that most of these players work with. You know, I have my own sort of GPS system that I can roll out on players and utilize. So, and, and I will happily share that information with anyone concerned, be that strength conditioning coaches, sports scientists, physiotherapists, doctors at, at, at teams or, or coaches, whoever it may be. And, and, and I often do that. But then also the other the other point I'd make is that, you know, a number of the guys that I see are guys that have been steered to me from clubs as well, because either they want to offer a new environment to a player to get them away from a, a certain training environment because they've been injured for a long period of time or because they're just trying to just trying to explore a different avenue to maybe, you know, for the want of better words, trying to try and get someone going again. And what were what were your concerns? So when you were in the roles at the club, and and if 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 you would come and approach it, or a player would approach you, mm. that made no sense with that whatsoever, did I? But if, if no, it does. <laughs> no, it does so. I know that. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, well, my my concern was that um, my my concern is that you know. It, it's it's often hard to gauge the credibility of people, you know. I mean, if 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 they're going off to see people that are established at clubs and they have all of the correct um, things in place in terms of qualifications and accreditations and experience, then you know, largely no problem at all, except for the fact that we still can't fully quantify everything that they're doing and control the suitability and the timing that they're being exposed to those sessions. So it might not be appropriate, for example, for players to go off on a Thursday evening um, and do a very heavy strength training session, um, you know, which would be, you know, less than 48 hours before a game, for example, you know. Um, but oftentimes the practitioners delivering these sessions don't know the full picture. They don't know the full um, schedule for a player and they don't necessarily have a concern um, about that schedule either because there isn't a consequence for them messing things up you know they're getting paid privately um, whereas I guess um, you know if, if you're in control of their programming within a club then you can control more, more or less everything you know and you can map things out that makes sense from a physiological perspective um, so it's, it's more or less the noise that it introduces the confusion that it introduces into the into the player schedule, you know, which we think uh, we deem to be optimized, um, you know, by our sort of prior planning, uh, it just introduces confusion into that. And I think, yeah, like you're right, aren't you? It depends on the validity of that person and 
it could be anyone, couldn't it, coming in? So unless you know that person and you, and you know the quality of work they're going to do, it can be tough for coaches. And I, and I understand why coaches are defensive in that um, situation because it could literally be anyone. It could be a, a personal trainer at a local gym, couldn't it, to, doing that session? Yeah, and and, and and don't disrespect personal trainers, by the way. No, no, no. And don't get me wrong. You know, there's there's plenty of high value PTs, I'm sure. You know, but but they're not privy to all of the prior information that you need to plan a session for for an elite performer. You know, we they probably won't understand how well a player responds to load or a certain type of stimulus. You know, and the recovery associated with that for an individual, they probably won't have that because they're not privy to the wealth of data that the full time guys are. And the other sort of real world element to this as well is that there's there's usually um, some level of like monetary bias here as well, right? You know, like these guys are privately employed trying to trying to make money, and uh, by virtue of that, it's it's um, I, I think it can often just um, inform programming in the wrong way. You know, if the if the objective is to make money. My, my experience of my experience of that is that oftentimes coaches or practitioners or uh, PTs in this scenario might do things to impress players that might actually be inappropriate for that individual, you know. Um, and the other one, I think that that most most people are most people are concerned about in in clubs is that these these guys often compromise what's you know they they send compromising messages into players around what what's going on. You know, for example, um, telling a player that they're unsure why they're being managed in a certain way and it doesn't make sense and they need to do more of X, Y and Z because, you know, um, because, you know, messages that I've heard in the past would include things like their, their glutes aren't functioning properly or their hamstrings are fatigued and, and, and things like that, you know, which which are probably a nonsense. But they're setting messages in players' minds that makes them cast doubt on the practitioners that are in place at clubs and that um, that can develop into this cascade of loss of trust and loss of buy-in and so on and so forth, which causes a problem. Yeah, and and all that can be is a conversation to sort that out as well, can it? And trying to tie in with these clubs. I think so. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, you know, the the, the the biggest question here might be, well, why why are players going there in the first place? You know, if 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 it's happening. And it, it might be because they fundamentally don't have confidence in the staff at clubs for whatever reason that might be. But it might be because the, the people employed at, cl- employed at clubs aren't investing the correct amount of time in the players, you know, and, and, and um, demonstrating how much they value them, perhaps, you know, because I don't see, I don't see too many players from... Um, real high-end clubs in the UK at the moment using those using those external guys, you know, players from the Man Cities, Liverpools, Tottenham's, um, maybe even Arsenal perhaps, you know, guys like team, teams like that. I don't see too many guys in social media from those teams going to external sources, whereas I do perhaps, you know, for the want of a better word, um, um, see people from if you like lesser teams um going and getting those services yeah and it, and it can also come down to personal relationships can't it like you said that i'm guessing they're players that you've previously worked with that you've got a relationship with you've got the trust of that player as well and that's why they're seeking out the work with you because they know the quality 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I, I don't, I, I, you know, I, I don't think there's probably any anything that I do any better than than anyone else of the, you know, thousands of guys in the UK that have got undergrad and postgrad sports science degrees, UKSE accreditation, and and those bits and pieces. I don't, I don't think there's much stand out that I do differently. I just think it comes down to familiarity and relationships and, um, and those things, you know, and I, I, I genuinely care about my guys, you know, I, I genuinely care about, um, about their well-being and their performance, you know, and, um, and I think they respect the fact that I'm transparent as well. You know, I think, I think that the guys that I work with respect that fact, you know, because, um, I just think it makes you a bit more credible, you know, if you're, if you're happy to share information. Now I know when, when I've, I've worked with guys in the past that have gone to external guys, you know, pretty high profile guys, um, you know, that are large on social media in the UK and I've asked for information back from those sessions and never received it. You know, basically, you know, that, that wouldn't, wouldn't take a lot of time to, to, provide answers for that I've never been provided, you know, supporting data for. So, um, you've got to ask why. And oftentimes it, it comes back to not understanding why, you know, but maybe just being very good at marketing. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you to, to go back into your um, experience at clubs and also what's going on now as well. And, and possibly with the players you're working with and feedback from them, What's your opinion on the intensities that players are training at? And I know that can be a very broad question because it, it depends club to club and player to player. But there's a lot of views now, and I've heard a lot more people speaking about players being not necessarily under-trained, but not exposed to enough in intensity. Yeah. Um, well, I, th I think it can be a fair argument. L like you said, I think, that, I think that it varies massively club to club. Um, you know, I, th I think there's, I think there's a fine line here between trying to exploit the adaptive capacity of players um, and their performance capacity, um, but treading that fine line between, you know, developing an overload scenario and, you know, a negative cascade down the athlete well-being continuum. Um, and, you know, there's, there's an understandable level of fear around injuries, you know, because players are high value assets in football teams now. Staff are under pressure to, to, keep, to keep players fit, keep players performing. And they do come under scrutiny and questions are asked of staff when players do get injured. You know, so you, so you can understand why in some scenarios there might be a, a conservative approach or a more risk averse approach. Um, but we know that, you know, through literature, you know, both old and new literature that load is often medicine and actually load can be, um, you know, can, can, can prevent injury and, and, and more often than not does when it's delivered in a systematic and sensible way. Um, but I think that this, this kind of notion that, um, that, um, or this kind of emphasis that's being placed on load and, and its relationship with injury is, is largely being driven by the um, kind of narrative that we're seeing in research at the moment. You know, like you, you very rarely pick up a paper now or, or find a, a scientific article that will tell you the relationship between load and performance. Right. Um, so the amount of load that's associated with 
better match play physical performances or um, the loading paradigms that are associated with faster improvements in metabolic factors or metabolic profiles in players. But you'll find a truckload of papers published every month that will tell you the relationship between load and injury. And, you know, if it's whether it's sort of Tim Gabbert's AC load metric or um, accumulated load, you know, I, I read very interestingly, actually, as a, a really nice paper, uh, Laura Bowen's paper down at Southampton on the relationship between AC load and injury risk in, in uh, Premier League football players, which were, you know, obviously, obviously Southampton players. You know, and they deliver really nice, interesting insights um, and they hold a lot of value. But the very fact that most of these publications are concerned with tying the, or, or connecting the dots between load and injury makes us kind of forget about the, the, the dots that need to be connected between load and performance, I think. Um, and, you know, there's probably an intricate relationship there between, between fatigue and injury and fatigue and performance. And we can probably infer that if, if players are picking up injury as a result of um, adverse training loads, and it's likely that they're going to be fatigued and it's likely subsequently that performance will be compromised as well. But it would be nice to see more investigations looking at relationships between load and performance um, to maybe negate some of that kind of conservatism that, that, that is in football at the moment around, around load, you know, because my my stance on these things is that is that load is medicine and in the long term it's preventative for injury you know but the 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 under the undertone to to the body of literature at the minute is that i'll be careful of load you know be careful of load and it shouldn't be it should be okay well be sensible with load do you think, think that just comes down to understanding like you say with the research and stuff if there was more research out there and more information out there maybe practitioners will understand it better and be able to apply it better maybe yeah i mean look you know um you know none of us none of us should ever stop learning as such you know and and um you know whether we create new knowledge or or, or go to journal articles and 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 um and read what else is is sort of being churned out in sports science at the moment um, it, it doesn't really matter, but um, yeah, absor- absorbing new information or creating new information, but then more importantly, disseminating that that information amongst the people that matter, which ultimately are coaches. You know, I, I don't think there's a strong enough understanding in um, in technical coaches regarding how to periodize um, load across a across a, a microcycle in preparation for a game um i think there are a lot of you know a, a lot of people in you know the top few tiers of football in the uk that do that exceptionally well both technical coaches and physical physical coaches or sports scientists but um on the large or you know uh, for the most part i think that there's a lack of appreciation of its perform of, of its association with performance and its importance and we, and so would you say that's like the one of the most, the, that's the most common mistake that you see with coaches looking from the outside? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe, I mean, you know, I, I would never, you know, I would never presume to, to tell a technical coach, you know, what their main mistakes are beyond their physical preparation methods. You know, if they've got, 
you know got strong opinions on that. Um, but I, I guess in my in my experience, what what are the most what are the most common errors that I see in technical coaches or, or, or managers? Um, probably operating with a philosophy that's dominated by volume and not by intensity. You know, so training for training for perhaps long periods of time or covering large volumes of distance without a, a, a good bandwidth of intensity that they're exposing players to. So distinctive days that have a low intensity and distinct days that have a very high intensity. Um, you know, they, the, the, um, the most difficult environments that I've worked in have been in environments where more often than not sessions look the same and don't feel differently and, and objectively don't look differently from a, a volume or an intensity perspective. And I've more often than not, and I don't mean to throw a blanket over Europe here, but I, you know, more often than not, I've seen that in some of the kind of continental models um, that, you know, from coaches that I've worked with across the content uh, continent, kind of high levels of training monotony um, and, you know, I can't really comment on the coach education that those guys are, are exposed to. But, um, you know, perhaps 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 there needs to be a greater emphasis placed on uh, physical content within coach education models now. And one area I spoke to Darren Burgess about was um, how he calls his, his, Burjo, his Burjo scale or his Burjo rating of sessions. Yes. So that's the thing I wanted to touch on with you that, he was. He was. He talked a lot about obviously the data that they um, have access to, and then yeah. Tom spoke in one of our network meetings about all the different different areas of data that they have at Arsenal. But they both said it comes down to their point of view a lot of it, and and how, how Darren calls it his Burjo rating. So, what's your views on that? Well, I mean, I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? You know, I, you know, I, I can imagine as. I can imagine that um, they they put a lot of stock a lot of stock in the objective stuff as well as the subjective stuff. You know the the sort of Burjo's Burjo rating. Um, but the you know what I'd question is you know how how could you question the value of someone's opinion that has not only achieved as much as he's achieved in various codes of football, but also been witness. Um, to so many thousands of training sessions and, and, and match scenarios over the years, you know, there's a, there's a lot of value in that. And so as much as sports scientists want to objectify things and quantify things with, um, you know, scientific metrics, perhaps personally, I think there's a lot of stock in those subjective ratings, especially in a, in a, but to so many, many things and also by the way holds a phd in sports science and data analytics you know um let's let's not forget that you know so um he he obviously understands the limitations of of his own subjective metric more so than most of us you know he, he's a he's a very well published scientist but accepting that, he also continues to put a lot of stock in it, you know. So it it obviously holds a lot of value, and it's probably it's probably correlated with um, measures of performance, whether they're objective or subjective, in the past, or injuries that he's been witness to, you know. 
for example, you know, Burjo's rating was an eight out of 10 on a Tuesday and a player got a hamstring injury on the Wednesday. Um, he's probably made those connections over time and, and probably puts a lot of stock in that value. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't really question it. It's a very similar debate in my mind to the sort of money ball versus scouting methodology of talent ID, you know? So do we put all of our stock in statistics to identify successful players or you know, do we put all of our stock in in the um, in the experience of others? You know, and 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 their ex- well, th- their experience over time. And I think you need both. You know, because the stats bring ob- objectivity and take emotion out of it. But but you can't discredit the value of expert practitioners and people that have have seen as much as these guys have seen over the years. Um, so that that would be my response. Um, I think. I think if the question was, um, okay, we're going to get an intern in and the intern's going to, you know, stand by the side of the pitch every day in their first year and grade every session out of naught to 10, then I'd question it. You know, I'd question it because, because obviously that intern doesn't have the experience to, to, um, to quantify the, the, the training load. Um, but, but no, certainly with, with, you know those sort of leaders in our world. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't question that. And 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 I know for a fact because I know I know Burjo pretty well now. We've got we've actually got a few um, things we're collaborating on at the moment. We've got um, a couple of studies under review. Um, and I know for a fact that he's very objective in the way he works. You know, so so those things will only serve to complement his objective methods, not not dispel them. Yeah, and a lot of it that he said, he, he said he echoed exactly what you said in terms of it isn't just the case of him giving his view on the session. They obviously have got mm. the access to the data as well, and they will look at that as well. But like you said, it comes down to experience, doesn't it? He's he's seen a lot of different scenarios, and he he told a few stories as well about certain scenarios of players wanting to run every morning, and that he had to. It was something he hadn't really coped with before, and he had to obviously adapt to that situation at that given time as well. Mm. Yeah, again, it just comes back to experience, and and this is one of the you know I saw a, I, I, it might have been Dave Carolan actually. I, I saw one one of the guys tweeted earlier in the week about about how experienced sports scientists are, are making their way out of the game now for for various reasons and young guys are, you know, young guys are coming in and there's absolutely nothing wrong with young guys coming in, you know, that have got new ideas and they've experienced newer forms of education and, and all of those things. But the one thing they can't offer is experience, you know, and, and I've probably only come to realize the importance of experience in the last few years. Um, and unfortunately you have to wait until you're a bit older until you value the 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 value of experience you know but um but you you know and and largely i guess burjo's burjo's sort of stance on this are probably informed by the number of years that he practiced before he had so much objective data you know and and i've got to say just to build on this um it's just triggered my my memory i remember my first two years at watford we didn't have heart rate monitors, let alone GPS units. You know, this was prior to prior to the takeover. Um, you know, I think in two th- early two thousand thirteen, the takeover happened, um, and a, a lot of money and infrastructure came into the club. But for the two years prior to that, we didn't have heart rate monitors or GPS, and all of our decision making was based on very basic data. So, 
perceived exertion, player perceived exertion, and common sense decision making. You know, and I've got to say, you know, I, and and I can't I can't hang my hat on this and tell you tell you this objectively, but I don't believe just you know, having eyeballed that data relatively recently, I don't believe you'd see much difference in match outcomes, um, performance outcomes, physical fitness of players, injury risk or, or injury rates. Um, I, I genuinely don't think that's the case, but but that's largely because we had a very experienced group of staff, um, both on the coaching team and on the science and medical team that made very good basic basic decisions common sense decisions um and i'm not suggesting that's an optimal scenario because it isn't of course we'd want access to the intricate gps data and computerized tracking data and accelerometry bits and pieces and force plate information and all of these things to to measure load and the response to load and, and fatigue markers salivary metrics perhaps you know those sorts of things of course they help but um but the best coaches that I've worked with, both physical coaches and technical coaches, are the guys that just make very good, basic, common-sense decisions. And to tie into that and with performance, and I know it's an area you're passionate about, and it's an area I've been thinking about a lot this time of year in particular, is the focus on how well performance coaches or um, sports science departments have done at the clubs that have had successful seasons, so the clubs that have qualified for Champions League or overperformed. Um, but there's also, we forget, don't we, that there's a lot of good work being done at clubs that are, have been relegated yeah. um, in the lower leagues, and they don't necessarily get the spotlight this time of year that they probably should. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, you know I've got I've got good friends of mine that have been relegated from teams in the Premier League this summer, you know, and, and I know that they're outstanding practitioners doing doing outstanding work. Um, performance is interesting because performance really is relative, you know, and what, what I'd put to you if we're talking about, you know, performance per se is, you know, what, what is the greatest achievement? Is the greatest achievement being a Man City and winning the um, winning the league and winning the FA Cup uh, and the League Cup, or being at Liverpool, or Tottenham, and maybe winning the Champions League, perhaps you know, um, when you you already have excellent levels of resource, financial resource, human resource, infrastructure, etc., etc., or is the greater performance to be, let's say, for example, I don't know, a Burnley and just stay in the Premier League every year when you have, um, you know, a budget that's probably more akin to a mid-championship level club, for example. And I'm not discrediting anything that those sort of bigger teams have achieved because what they've done has been incredible and what they continue to do is incredible, both physically, technically, tactically, all of those things. And it takes unbelievable management and leadership skills to achieve those things, you know, as well as unbelievable physicality and robustness and all of those things. It, they're, they're exceptional achievements. I'm not taking it away from that, but, but performance, performance needs to be, needs to be relative. You know, for example, the, you know, the sports science guys at Huddersfield, John Iger, um, you know, just, just as an example, I know to be a leading sports science practitioner globally. Um, 
and yet Huddersfield have been relegated. Now, I'm, I'm sure that no one would attribute Huddersfield being re- relegated to, to their sports science department, but um, performance it, performance probably needs to be gauged on more of a relative basic is uh, more of a relative basis is the point that I'm making, and and that basis needs to be founded around you know the resources that they've got access to and, and so on and so forth. It's very hard to make decisions or gauge performance in medical and science departments because you know how can you measure what didn't happen? You know you can only measure what did happen. So you can only measure really injuries that have happened. Um, you know, and so some departments might be frowned upon fairly or unfairly because of that. And other departments might have had relatively few, um, quote unquote, preventable injuries and be deemed to be very good because of that. But oftentimes both sides of these arguments might be because of chance or other factors. And so, you know, it's always interesting when I look at the FMPA awards, I always wonder what the criteria is around those teams that have won sports science support or, me- or, or sports science and medicine support team of the year. Um, and I'm not saying that the teams that have won it are unjustified. I'm sure they're well justified. It's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting um, measure, isn't it, of, of player support service performance, um, this kind of perceived this perceived achievement and, and maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there's an objective criteria there somewhere that I'm, that I'm not privy to or I've not seen, but um, it, you know, it, it seems to me like, you know, I, I know that for example, those guys at Huddersfield who, who, who will be doing excellent work from a science and medicine perspective, as well as the guys at Burnley, perhaps who've had more of a modest season this year, who are doing outstanding sports science and medicine work might not be considered for those awards because you know they they might not have the public appeal perhaps i don't know maybe i'm speaking unfairly but it's just it's just my observation yeah and that and that i didn't mean to disregard any clubs that are that have won leagues or anything like that i just i just no i know i think there's teams that have been relegated that are down at the bottom of the leagues even in lower leagues and you speak to some of these practitioners and you and you realize the work they're doing and how good a quality it is and there's a lot of other aspects that come into performance isn't there stepping out on the pitch on a Saturday and winning games it's not just about sports science and what we do like there's some top quality work going on yeah and there's there's not always a direct connection between the you know very rarely is there a direct direct um, connection between how well a sports science and medicine department is functioning and how well a team does on a Saturday you know that of course it's important and uh, in an optimum environment, um, in an optimum environment, both 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 departments, the you know the, the football department, if you like, and the medical department and science departments, will all be functioning optimally. But there's not always a direct correlation between these things, and so understanding or, or measuring success in performance support departments is is probably quite a challenge um, because you can't measure the amount of injuries that you prevented. You can only measure the ones that happened. You know. Um, and also th- I also, I just genuinely, I just generally think there's probably a bias um, towards bigger, bigger teams with maybe, maybe more corporate interest when we're discussing the success stories of performance support, because it's just, it's just easier to do that, isn't it? Yeah. Than to, um, 
you know, hand the plaudits to maybe the, you know, the sports science and medicine accomplishments at a smaller club, maybe like a Swindon town or someone like that, you know, perhaps. Yeah, it's an interesting debate, isn't it? And uh, I'm sure it's something that hopefully will get raised and draw attention to as well. Um, just finally, Matt, I just wanted to ask, what are some things or some areas that you've changed your mind about over the years? Well, um, quite a lot, actually. I, I guess in, in terms of changing my mind or, or maybe just maybe just learning, um, I guess the, the biggest thing that I've learned is to... Um, have a very robust, immovable set of personal and professional values that I, when I'm at work, um, live and die by, right? So things like hard work, continuous learning, um, equality, respect, th- those sorts of things. And I think if you, can, if you can show all of those things, maybe empathy is a big one for me as well. If you can demonstrate all of those things you're probably not going to go too far wrong. You know, I remember in my first few positions on the odd occasion, listening to people speak about personal professional values and probably not really understanding what they meant, you know, and my, my perception when I was a younger practitioner was probably more akin to, well, I just need to be good at what I do. I just need to have good, good technical skills, good knowledge, be a good sports scientist and, and, and everything will be fine. But, you know, you come to learn quite quickly that that's not true. And it's actually probably more about personal relationships and 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 um, functioning as a team. Um, so I think I think kind of learning that or changing my mind that actually relationships and people skills are more important than 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 technical skills and, and maybe even knowledge, you know, because you might have all of the knowledge all of the knowledge and technical skills in the world, but if you can't communicate effectively with players and get them to follow you and buy into what you're offering them, then you're never going to achieve anything with them. You know, you're never going to execute a good rehab in a player that doesn't, um, you know, doesn't, if you like, maybe want for a better word, buy into what, what you're doing or believe that you're sincere or believe that the, that their needs are at your, um, or of your sole interest, you know? So I think demonstrating that you care is probably the most important thing when working with players. Um, you know, very similarly to what, to what sort of Burjo said in, in his recent chat with you guys, um, I've probably moved away a little bit from objective data when I work in practice, you know, and that it's always an interesting one, this, cause it almost makes you redundant a little bit as a sports scientist, but, um, having said that I put less stock in data when I'm making decisions doesn't mean that I don't observe data and review it and respect it. I will always do that. Um, but I will always contextualize that data with my instinct and, and what I think and what I think I've observed, um, you know, trying to keep emotion out of it and, and, and those sorts of things. But, um, what I mean by that is, if my perception through maybe a dialogue, informal dialogue with a player, like a conversation over breakfast in a hotel is that they're very fatigued, but yet their objective monitoring data doesn't suggest that. For example, their flight time contraction time ratio on a force plate is normal. You know, the reactive strength index data is normal. Um, their, maybe their salivary measures are normal and so on and so forth. And their, their, their training load data doesn't, offer me anything that demonstrates or offers a reason why they might be really fatigued, but yet 
they offer me that information in in conversation, I'd probably I would I would probably be very reactive to that, whereas I might not have been previously, you know. Um, so again, and and that just comes back to you know learning to trust your instincts and um, making common sense decisions rather than purely objective decisions all of the time. Because if a player did, if a player offered you that information and you continue to push them and they subsequently got re-injured or something like that, then there's only negative consequences to that. Whereas the worst outcome that could that could occur from changing your training session objective slightly as a result of perceiving that player to be fatigued based on their conversation would be that, well, maybe they, they didn't get quite the stimulus that you wanted them to, but they still didn't get injured. So it's not a negative outcome, you know? So trusting, trusting your, your instinct and, and, and uh, learning to make common sense decisions that's informed by data is probably where I've, where I've shifted um, the most. And then I guess finally, just accepting that we don't know everything as much as we want to think we do. We, we don't know everything, you know, so continuous learning, having a mentor, having a series of mentors, you know, like there's guys that I regularly pick the phone up to, to ask questions about and get their opinion on, even if I've got a fairly solid opinion myself. Probably 10 years ago, I wouldn't have done that. I would have, I would have backed my own instincts, but I've kind of learned to ask questions you know, I think sometimes the best answers are questions, you know, I've kind of learned that over the years as well. Um, so yeah, I think, I think maybe softening down a little bit, if I'm going to make that quite, quite <laughs> a concise answer, you know? No, I think that's some top advice, mate. I think there's some quality stuff in there that people can take away. Where can people follow your work, Matt? Um, so I'm on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is just at Matt Springham. Um, I'm also on ResearchGate, so if you if you if you um, you know if, if you're on ResearchGate, then you'll know what that is. If you don't, then just Google search ResearchGate, and then you know you'll find truckloads of practitioners and academics that that publish their work on ResearchGate. And um, you know, I actually need to update mine, but you know, I I. I, I, I will stick my stuff on there. We've got some forthcoming publications, hopefully in the next few months in sort of load and fatigue monitoring and bits and pieces that will be on there. Um, so they're, they're the main platforms I use to sort of disseminate data and, uh, and thoughts and ideas and those sorts of things. Awesome. That sounds really good. And the guys can go and check you out and then check out all the work you put out there and future work to come as well. Yeah. And by all means, any of your listeners can get in contact, you know, if they want to look at, if they, if they're interested in football load and fatigue and, and those sorts of things and uh, football science, perhaps then by all means, look me up. My, my email address for work is matt.springham at stmarys.ac.uk. I'm always keen to talk about football science and load monitoring and fatigue and those sorts of things. Amazing, mate. Well, uh, thanks a lot for your time today. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for your time. Thanks for inviting me on. And uh, well done in starting a, a really novel and necessary in sort of football-specific science. So it's a really nice idea. Thanks a lot, mate. Appreciate it. And we'll uh, hopefully catch up soon. I hope so. Thanks a lot for your time. Cheers, Matt. Big thank you to Matt for coming on the podcast. Some of my biggest takeaways were where he spoke about the importance that, um, or the realization that we we talk a lot about 
the relationship on load on injury, but we also need to look at the relationship of load on performance as well. I think that was my biggest takeaway from the episode with Matt. And then he also spoke about the value of um, expert practitioners. So I think he mentioned Dave Carolan in the episode that David tweeted about some of the more experienced practitioners coming out of the game now. And Matt spoke about the importance of keeping them in the game and what they can bring and what that experience can bring to performance. And then also he mentioned what the great, he asked the question, what is the greatest achievement? So whether it is winning a league and having the facilities and the funding that teams at the top of the league have, or use Burnley as the example, staying in the Premier League on a low budget and some of the quality work that goes on in clubs like that, but also the clubs that are down towards the bottom of the league as well. So not to discount any of the work that goes on from the practitioners across the league and across the country. So thank you again to Matt for coming on. You can check out his work on ResearchGate. So if you search Matt Springham on ResearchGate, and you can also go over to Twitter to follow him. He's at Matt Springham on Twitter. Thanks again for listening. Please share the show. Share it on Twitter, Instagram, um, on Facebook. Send it out on your WhatsApp groups, and uh, we'll speak to you again next week.